Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of places where there's just no trail. You just you just go for it. You just gotta know what you're doing. <laughs> GPS is definitely recommended out there. And unfortunately, something that we wanted to make sure we conveyed in the film was that GPS and safety is so important because they lose people out there all the time. Lost on the Jamir, if you get lost on the Jamir Trail, somebody's gonna find you, right? But out there, it's there's people that have disappeared for like a decade found later on. And uh, yeah, it's there's, you know, it's wild, right? You don't get a lot of traffic. So if you get lost, you can't just wait for the next hiker to come down the trail. Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, taking some small comfort from watching the rains these last few days. And this is the podcast where I talk to experienced thru-hikers about their adventures on the trail and strategies for successfully completing a thru-hike. Today's guest is Chris Smead. He co-directed a documentary called Highline, which follows the 10-day hike of five friends on the Highline Trail in the northern Utah mountains. Along with the hike, the film also reflects on each man's personal journey as well as the history of the trail itself. And in this episode, we discuss how the film came to be and the challenges of filming in such a remote location with crazy weather patterns and continuous high altitude. And if you need a little solace from the off-trail blues, Highline was released on streaming platforms yesterday. You can find this episode and all previous episodes at hiking-through.com, where you can also find show notes, photos, and links for any gear mentioned in this podcast. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcast and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Chris. Uh, well, wonder, welcome to the podcast. Very excited uh, when you and Emma uh, reached out to me for this movie. It was it was actually really timely, strangely enough. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I guess it is because you know. We're all bored at home. We might as well do something, right? So <laughs> started sending out some promotional emails and stuff. And yeah, thanks for getting back to us on it. Well, I guess I, I should uh, divulge further. Um, so I was hypothetically supposed to be on the trail this coming Saturday. Um, I was supposed to start the PCT. Oh, no. Sorry to hear that. Bummer. <laughs> But what was, what was so interesting to me is like I had kind of just given up on doing it this year. And then watching your, your movie, I was like, no, no, I, I need, I need to somehow stay connected with it, even if worst case scenario, I can't do anything. But your, your, uh, your movie kind of inspired me to, uh, to take another look at my plans or what plans I will have left once we're all out of our houses again. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad it inspired you. I, I hope. I hope something works out. I have my own plans too. I'd plan to parallel the John Muir trail this summer and mostly off trail kind of routes and lesser known trails. So it wouldn't, you know, crowd so much. And I was so excited about this. I've been planning for a long time and then this hit. So, you know, I have no idea if that's going to happen either. I mean, I know obviously there's people out there that are going to have way worse, you know, situations going on. So yeah. I can't feel bad about my, about my situation here, but yeah, it is still still a bummer. I know a lot of other people are in the same boat, but yeah, we'll we'll get through it eventually. When you say when you say parallel, what does that mean exactly? I've never heard that used before. So instead of hiking the John Muir Trail proper, I pieced together a bunch of uh, trails that are near it, and some of it's just cross country off trail that will run parallel to the John Muir Trail. So I'll, I'll start in Yosemite, just like you know anybody doing the JMT. But then uh, I would end south of Mount Whitney through Horseshoe Meadow. And then most of the trails I would be taking from Yosemite to south of Mount Whitney would not be on the John Muir Trail. It would be like random other side trails and stuff. It took a long time to to plan because of that because it's not super well documented like the JMT is. So it's a lot of lesser traveled trails and, like I said, some cross-country and it would just be more, a little bit more isolated, a little more adventurous. And uh, I was really looking forward to that. And uh, hopefully it happens. You never know. I planned it for July, but yeah, you never know. It could happen. We'll Fingers see. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And toes. I, exactly. Exactly. It would be a, a perfect uh, social distancing solution. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because I'd be far away from everybody. And obviously the resupply situation is concerning a lot of people right now yeah. because you're coming into towns and 
you know, you're not exactly sanitary when you're a hiker, but you also didn't come into contact with too many other people. But yeah, I, I still understand the risk. So must be careful still. So it sounds like you are a pretty avid hiker. I am definitely an avid hiker. <laughs> I discovered, yeah, I, I discovered hiking in, well, I've been hiking since I was like seven, right? Uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up around hills. You know, there was hills right by my house. There's a bunch of trails that to me at the time were like a huge epic adventure. Looking back at it, they were pretty <laughs> subpar, you know, typical, you know, city area trails. But I was I was lucky enough to have that. And I think that kind of sparked my whole enthusiasm for it that stuck with me until about 2003 or 2004 Then I discovered backpacking. Started out with just like anybody else with like, you know, 50 60 pounds mostly of stuff i didn't need on my back <laughs> and then eventually you know through the years honed that down got a little bit better at it and yeah it's just a huge passion for me i, I really really love it you know it's just it's a nice getaway from the, the you know the the challenges of, of civilization <laughs> it's nice to get away from technology and stuff and i don't know I, I live in the silicon valley right so i'm always surrounded and working in technology and uh, it's good stuff. It, it has been really helpful for humanity as a whole. I get it. But there's something just so healthy to get away from that and to just be around trees and have a much simpler life of just trees and dirt and rocks and mountains. You know, it's yeah, I crave that much like you do, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, I think a lot of people are going to appreciate that even more after this whole experience. I uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's actually a really good point. I'm wondering. I wonder if there's going to be like a huge surge of new backpackers and hikers out there. Hmm. I hope that so. could be a problem. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I'm always torn about that. Right? Cause, you know, I want people, I think everybody should get out there and see the outdoors, but not all at the same time, not all on the same trails. Right. <laughs> It'd be nice if we were all spread out evenly, social distancing, I guess. So, well, and I, we'll I see think what your whole thing about unplugging from technology is going to be a really interesting thing as well after this, because with everybody stuck in their houses, I mean, that's all mm -hmm. we're doing is technology at this point, you know, binge watching TV shows and being online and, you know, all the rest of it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think maybe I'm just, you know, making stuff up here, but I wonder if when we come out of this, if we're going to appreciate personal contact a lot more, you know, right now it's, or in the past, I feel like we didn't need, personal contact as much you know you have your phone you've got your tv at home I mean, you've got your laptop you've got social media you're you're contacting people in a pseudo sort of way mm -hmm. and it works and i think i think we've been doing that but there's definitely something missing there right so maybe once that's the only thing we have for these these next few months maybe when we come out of it uh, we'll we'll appreciate more actual physical contact with with people actually being able to shake someone's hand or or just see them in person i think that at least personally for me, that's going to be much more valued. <laughs> yeah, I think we will. It it will be very interesting to see what we all learn from this whole experience. For sure. But I guess circling back kind of to the hiking backpacking thing, your your movie is about the Highline Trail. Yep. So the film is called Highline, and it is about uh, five friends who traverse a very unknown mountain range that's in the center of the united states so it's, it's in utah northern utah but for some reason so many people just don't know about this place and it's a pretty darn epic trail to be doing it's i would say it's more advanced than the john muir trail route finding's a lot tougher but it's just a beautiful place and it's just it was honestly just kind of a shock to me that so few people knew about this place and uh yeah so the, the film is about five friends who traverse this range and then we go into it, it's not just a hiking film it's a hiking film but it also dives heavily into the history of the area which is very fascinating and we were fortunate enough to get a phd uh, archaeologist to uh, to interview on camera to talk about that and then uh, it, the film also dives heavily into the five hikers themselves, the characters, I guess you could call them. I hate calling them characters because it's not like acting. They're just, yeah. you know, people <laughs> that we happen to put cameras in front of. And the five hikers have very fascinating backstories and they're all very different people. And uh, I just think it's really interesting how all five of these people came together in life, even though 
they're so different. They have such different backgrounds. Hiking brought them together, and this adventure of, of hiking this, this trail brought them together even further. So yeah, it's it's a it's a fun film. We've been getting a lot of positive feedback about it. We've been hearing everything from, you know, it made me cry to hmm. it made me super happy, made me want to get outside. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I think right now, I, I think it's a really we didn't plan this, of course, but I think it's a really <laughs> it's a really good thing to have it out right now because so many of us are stuck indoors and we're going crazy and just at least being able to live the experience of hiking for 10 days through your TV screen is uh it's better than nothing. So <laughs> it's a good reminder that there's a world out there. It's a nice reminder that there's a place out there that's not the inside of your house and is not covered in viruses. Yeah, no, I, I can totally attest to that. Like I said before, it reminded me of how badly I wanted to be out there. We've been hearing that a lot. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. Now, how did, how did the project come together? You are the director of the project. So was it you coming together, your brainchild coming together with these guys or these guys' brainchild coming together with you? I'm a backpacker first, right? And it started off as that. So myself and then Matt Favreau, who is a, from ZPAX, I'm sure you guys have heard of ZPAX. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Me and Matt just started, you know, chatting online. We, we became friends. He was getting into cameras. I'm a camera geek too. So we would just chat a lot about that. We just hit it off. And then at some point he's like, Hey, you should come out and hike with us. And I'm like, sure. What's, you know, that sounds fun. And uh, this, this trip idea came up. <clears throat> he's like, there's this unknown mountain range in Utah. Let's go do it. And I was like, okay, can I bring a camera? <laughs> Mind if I film it? And uh, he he luckily was very receptive receptive to the idea, and the uh, the other people who were coming along were also very receptive to the idea. And the the idea was we would make like a you know a short hiking film, like a little fifteen minute short film, and and you know put it together really quick. And then as we started getting into the history of the area and doing some you know pre research. Uh, we started finding out that the the hikers themselves that were coming all had very interesting backstories. So I brought in co-direct, my friend Gordon Gurley, we'd known each other for like 20 years, and I brought him in as a co-director, and we started looking at this and piecing it out and realizing this is not a 15-minute film. And uh, <laughs> it kind of started ballooning and snowballing, and by the end of it, you know, we've got this 117-minute film, a close to two-hour film. And uh, it could have been longer. We really had to trim it down to get it to that length. And uh, yeah, you know, 15 months of editing, it was it was a beast. But uh, yeah, it, it didn't it didn't start off as hey, let's make a movie. It started off as like let's do a hike. Then let's make a little short film. Then you know, it turned into this. So it was uh, not as strategically planned as you would think. But in the end, I think it worked out okay. <laughs> well, what's so interesting? to me to think about is I mean the the film itself is about these five guys and but this is a this is a through hike even a a 10 day through hike and you guys are filming it so you guys are essentially on the hike with them but you're carrying a lot of camera equipment with you <laughs> so luckily all the guys on the hike are super ultra light backpackers right we got Joe Velasco from uh, from Zpax the founder of Zpax Matt uh, Benny Braden aka plug it in our good friend Steve as Steve Kaiser, a, a Canon wall hikes, and then Will Wood, pretty well-known ultralight people. And because of that, I was able to <laughs> use them as mules. <laughs> so those four guys, each of those guys was carrying at least four pounds worth of gear on them, on top of everything else. They were mostly carrying batteries. And then uh, Gordy and I were just following along behind them, trying to stay out of each other's shots. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was normally fairly ultralight. But for a lot of that hike, I was over 40 pounds, which is a ridiculous amount of weight for me. I'm not that strong. I'm just kind of a normal dude. So carrying 40 plus pounds at times was not easy. It was, yeah. My core weight was actually really low. You know, it, I think I was probably, without the camera gear, I think it would have been probably 25 pounds for the longest stretch, which was, you know, seven days. But uh, yeah, with the camera gear on top of that, yeah, no way. Especially the batteries, and unfortunately, the 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 Sony cameras that we used, we shot the film on a, a Sony A6500 and then a Sony A7R2. Those camera geeks out there, those are great cameras, but they burn batteries like crazy, and the it would take all day to try to solar charge one battery, right? But I was burning you know four 
plus batteries a day. Goldie was burning 34 batteries a day. So yeah, it solar didn't make sense. So we just had to stockpile tons of batteries and just carry those as we went. And it's not like food where it's an expendable item where you eat it and then it's gone. It's like when you spend those batteries, once they're, they're useless to you, you still have to carry them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not going anywhere. Yeah, so that that was that was a fun challenge, and uh, but you know, yeah, we got through it. And luckily, the other guys were super under. We had a number of conference calls beforehand saying, "Hey, you know, we're going to be carrying this camera gear. I know that you guys like to hike twenty, thirty plus miles a day, but uh, with the camera stuff, we need to slow down a lot." And luckily, they were super kind, and they were able to tailor to our uh, handicap. And uh, yeah, they you know we slowed them down to a little over twelve, eh, yeah, ten to. 10 to 13 mile days, which is fairly easy usually, but the terrain of Uintis was very aggressive. Yeah. And the and obviously the camera weight added to that. So it was fun. It was good. I, I would do it again for sure. I'd probably bring different stuff. You wouldn't have to document it. Oh man, that would be so great to do that trail without camera stuff. I bet I could just fly through it and enjoy every second. I, I still enjoy it every second. Actually, having the camera stuff out there, it's a different experience. It's it's less calming and detoxing and it's more adventurous because you're, you're always thinking about what you should be doing. It's like, okay, we came across this cool Vista. These guys are, or these guys are about to hike up to the top of this cool pass. And, you know, one of us, we'd have to strategize, you know, one of us would run up to the top and get talked from coming up and have somebody down below. And then, so we have stuff to, to cut back and forth during the edit. And uh, yeah, that was, yeah, it makes it fun. We got to do some cool little, a MacGyver style tricks too that I'm kind of proud of. It's a national forest and the film was fully permitted. Uh, we had to be careful to make sure we followed all the rules. And one of the rules was no no drones. Which I was fine with because I didn't want I didn't want to carry a drone <laughs> in my yeah. backpack anyways. It was already too heavy. So uh, we ended up doing this cool trick with a trekking pole and uh, putting a gimbal so a camera with a on top of the gimbal, which is a little camera stabilizer, if you're not familiar with that, and then attaching that to the top of a trekking pole. So between my, you know, five ten, you know, almost six feet high, plus this, you know, four or five foot trekking pole, plus the gimbal and the camera on top of that, I was able to get shots that were like 12, 13, 14 feet in the air. And those worked out to be very, pretty drone-like, I thought. So I, I didn't miss it at all. We did get a few drone shots on the road afterwards where it was legal. But everything on the trail was fully legal, and we didn't need to use a drone out there at all. Creativity is a, a fun thing, you know. When you have every option in the world in front of you, then things are overwhelming and, and not as exciting. Right? But like when you have to be creative with what you have out there, I think that's a lot more uh, fun. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to MacGyver it, as you say. Yeah, I love watching MacGyver as a kid, so now I get to act it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a perfect way to do it. Did you also put a like a wide angle lens on that camera? Yeah, we brought eleven lenses total. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, we used pretty much every single. We used them all, and there's other lenses I wish we had. Yeah, it was, it, you know, lenses are metal and glass, right? So there's nothing ultralight about those. Most of our camera weight was probably those lenses, and because we're moving pretty quick, and we're not these guys aren't actors, right? So we had to really be adapting to whatever was happening right away. We didn't have time to sit and like, okay, give us take two, give us take three. Like we, we couldn't do that. We had to be super quick. So when it came to changing lenses, we had to just like do it while, while hiking many times and uh, just do things as quickly as possible. And luckily that worked out because I ended up using a, a, a zoom lens during the day mostly, which I, I prefer prime lenses, lenses that don't zoom, that are more you know, sharp, that are more higher quality. Mm-hmm. But uh, during the day, I ended up making some sacrifices and using a zoom lens so I could switch between a wide angle shot and a somewhat, a somewhat telephoto shot uh, you know, within a second without having to switch lenses too much. And whenever we would stop, like if we got to the top of like a pass or got to some cool open meadow or something, I would stop and you know, switch lenses, put on a, a wide lens or do whatever I need to do. It's... I mean, you br- you bring up a really interesting point in that you know this is a documentary, so you don't have the traditional production thing of take one, take two, take three, you know, so forth. You sort of are, are in the moment, capturing what is happening. Yeah, that's the funny thing about this was 
we tried it sometimes to get second takes. There's a, a number of times we had where somebody would describe the situation. Say we got to some awesome place, whatever, and we would ask them to tell us about it uh, on camera. They would do it, and sometimes they would bumble their words, or somebody else would be talking in the background. And we'd ask them to do it again, and without fail. Every time they had to do it the second or the third time, they're not actors, right? So it was coming across very robotic. And catching the normal, the real character was really important to me. And so take take three type stuff was too robotic sounding. So I just ended up ditching all those takes. And you know, most of the film is uh, I would say ninety nine percent of it is take one type stuff. There's very few times we actually had to use a second take. I think if you're working with real, you know, real professional famous actors, it's a very different story. You can use like the 20th take and it'll sound better than the mm-hmm. first. But not so much with real people or normal people. Not not that actors are not normal or real, but <laughs> with, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're trained to be able to do the thing repetitively um, and even add potentially some nuance and that kind of stuff. People, normal people are not trained because now they're thinking about it. What did I say? How did I say it? What did he, What is it that he liked about that? How can I duplicate that? They become too self-conscious. And yep. yeah, it's, it's, it's like it pulls from the logic side of your brain versus just the natural side. So the creative side, I guess. Yeah, definitely capturing as much realism was uh, you know, a big priority for the project. It was the project, I think. <laughs> Same thing, not just the stuff that we captured in the field, but there's a lot of interviews that we shot right. at home afterwards at everybody's houses. And uh, yeah, same thing with those. It was all take one stuff that we ended up using. Now, the trail that you guys were hiking, the Highline Trail, is in which mountain range again? The Uintas. The Uintas. So uh, northern Utah has a, ra- a mountain range that's a little over 100 miles long that separates Utah from Wyoming. And it's called the Uintas, U-I-N-T-A-S. And uh, it is a beautiful place. It's just not very well known for some reason. Logistically, it's kind of a challenge to get there. You know, you have to fly into Salt Lake City, and then you feel like a four-hour drive. Totally worth it, in my opinion. And it's it's kind of like doing a John Muir trail, but without the crowds. I think the first four or five days, we saw, like, maybe one other group. And I didn't see anybody for a while. I mean, maybe maybe the whole trip, we might have seen a dozen people over the course of 10 days. And it doesn't happen in the Sierra Nevada, right? I love the Sierra. Yeah. They're really, really good me. But you can't find a 10-day stretch where you only run into a dozen or less people. So, yeah, it's, it's an awesome place. It's uh, The Uintas are a mountain range that's in the Ashley National Forest and the uh, Uintas Wasatch Cache National Forest. There's two national forests next to each other. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It's, it's really beautiful. The mountains are different from the John Muir Trail. They're not quite, some, some parts actually really reminded me of the JMT, while the mountains kind of are shaped that way, but they have like a red tint to them. So it's got a lot of character. It's not like, it's not like Bryce. It's not like one of those, you know, really red rock canyon type places, but it's, it's like if you mixed Bryce with the Nevada. So you have like the epic, cool looking mountains, but then you have like this red tint to them. Uh, there's it's it's just a really unique look to it and unique feel overall and it just it felt like a different planet at times and wildness is what stuck to us too yeah i mean you guys were were remote way remote and i think most of the trip was above ten thousand feet is that correct yeah yeah so that's the really unique thing about this trail that really shocked us we've all done long trails before most of us have i mean a lot of guys on the hike have done the pct the appalachian trail and the pct in particular right i mean when you go off and you do um mount whitney 14.5 right 14,500 feet yeah. yeah that's pretty high right we we pretty much everybody on this hike had at least done that and it was because of that we thought that we were more immune to altitude sickness than we were but when you hike a trail like the John Muir Trail or the PCT, you start off low and you gradually work your way up. It's like, okay, you know, you start at a couple thousand feet and you work way up to like, you know, 9,000 feet and then 10,000 feet. And then you might hit a pass that's 12,000 feet, but then you drop down and you might sleep at 9,000 feet, right? So there's a lot of ups and downs. And none of us had have, ever had any issues with elevation. None of us. Until we got to the Uintas. When we got to the Uintas, day one, we were at like, 9,000 feet or so, and that was like the lowest we were at on the whole hike. And we were we were hiking 
and going over, you know, 11, 12,000, 13,000 foot passes. But then we were sleeping at 11 to 12,000 feet. So we never got to drop down to, to 9,000 feet again. And because of that, I think it really disrupted our acclimation and made it a lot tougher. So several of us got very ill, despite being careful, despite being, you know, well hydrated, mostly. Uh, yeah, we, we ran into some, to some challenges. Several guys were from Florida, which is, you know, obviously, <laughs> and they came up and they had done stuff like this before. It's not a big deal. But this trail, just the elevation profile, because you didn't get a break in the elevation, it really, yeah, it impacted our group quite a bit. A lot of headaches, a lot of barfing, <laughs> stuff yeah. like that. Well, I mean, you had the, I guess what you were showing on, on the show or in the film, you had at the very beginning people having issues with it. But then you also had a couple of people who were continuing to have issues with it uh, to the ex- to a dangerous extent, even. Yeah, we didn't expect that. So normally, when you know we we'd run into elevation issues, it's like you get a headache, you know, whatever, and then you acclimate for night and you're better. And that was the case for some of us. But uh, I would say probably the second night is where most of us started feeling the worst, and then. Uh, and then most of us recovered, but then there was a couple, I, you know, I don't want to ruin the film, but yeah, there, there was a couple of people who continued to not do better. One in particular. And yeah, that, that got scary. That's the first time that I ever saw it that bad before. Yeah. I think that's the first time I saw it that bad and I don't, I don't want to ruin the film, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you, were you suffering from altitude sickness as well? I mean, obviously, cause you're not documented in the actual film, but. A little bit. So luckily, Gordy and I, we arrived uh, two days beforehand. And so we were we were driving around the area. So we had more of an acclimation than the other guys did. And uh, we were able to adjust a little easier. We both, I definitely got a headache at times. My, my appetite was severely diminished, but it never got serious with me. Um, I'm an asthmatic, so oh, I, I have an inhaler and stuff. Yeah. I mean, but I had an inhaler and I think that was really keeping my lungs open. So I, I was doing all right. Um, <laughs> Gordy, I think Gordy had a little bit of headache. Actually, Gordy was, I remember Gordy was struggling. He was getting like a, like weird dreams and stuff, which happens at elevation as you know. And yeah, he was getting a lot of that. <laughs> and he was getting some severe exhaustion from it too, but we weren't as bad as uh, some of the people that were you know, in the film. It's pretty funny to me, you know, you guys were loaded down, everybody, not just the directors, but everybody was loaded down with camera gear and, and food for a more extended period of time. Cause you went, you said seven days before you resupplied. Yeah. We were lucky enough to get a resupply on day three or day four. I think it was day four. We got a resupply. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. And it's, what's funny is it's not like Muir trail ranch, right? It's not like one of those really established resupply points on the, on the John Muir trail or something. You have to know somebody. And luckily we, we, you know, knew somebody who was kind enough to uh, pick up a resupply ahead of time and then drive it out to the trail and uh, met us up there. And yeah, he was great. He brought us zucchini bread. That's what it was zucchini bread Ooh, too. And that was like nice. amazing. His wife made it and brought it out. and was like, yes, real food. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause if you, th- I guess if you think about it, most through hikers, particularly PCT and CDT, you know, they, they depend on being able to get out to a road that is, traveled enough that you can get a ride into town but you guys were really in the back of beyond like there was no way that you were going to just have some random person driving along the road yeah yeah not at all <laughs> yeah it's definitely the most remote place i think i'd ever been to um even even when I, I did a section of the iditarod trail in alaska and even that was way more you know populated than than this was What's great is it's right in the center of the United States. How have we not heard of this? You know, it, it's so weird to me. And I, I keep finding new places that are within the United States. They're all right here that people just don't go to. You know, we, we all were so good at flocking to Yosemite, to Bryce, yeah. to Arches, to, you know, Smoky Mountain National Park. There's, there's so many places that we all flock to. And they're wonderful places. I love them. But there's all these places that are unknown, like Black Ridge Wilderness. Have you heard of that? Probably not, not at all. Yeah, nobody's heard of Black Ridge Wilderness, but it's like a beautiful, awesome desert place to hike with cool canyons. And I, I spent five days there once and didn't see a single person. So, and that's in Colorado, right? And it's 
it's we're not talking about some distant remote country where you, you can't get there. It's like it's in Colorado. And then <laughs> I don't know. Right New now, Colorado is a distant remote country. <laughs> uh, yeah, the grocery store feels like a remote country right now. But right. Uh, but then in the New Orleans, you know, northern Utah, it's it's not that far. I mean, Salt Lake City is like a huge city. You know, it's it's a airline hub, right? There's always people going in and out. And for some reason, that mountain range right next to it is just untouched. So pretty pretty cool I, th- I think i want to keep looking for more places like that that are lesser traveled there are a lot more adventures to hike in and uh you know the solitude is nice too yeah well i mean i think the whole that whole area you know whether you're talking about colorado you're talking about utah montana wyoming you know even new mexico and arizona like the the populations are very centralized like so many people are in in close proximity and then there's so much area that is just open and and free. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's part of. I wouldn't say it was the main motivator, but something that we hope happens is that people, after seeing this film, and st- maybe would start looking at other different places to go to and kind of divert some of that traffic. Like, what if five percent of people that were going to go hike the John Muir Trail decide to go do the Uintas instead? that's 5% less traffic on the John Muir Trail, you know, and, and that wouldn't hurt the Uintas at all. I mean, we, we had a number of conversations with uh, the Ashley National Forest and Uinta Wasatch Cache National Forest, and they were very cool with uh, the potential for an increase in, in usage on the trail because, honestly, just nobody goes there at all. And there's trails that we've heard that there's been trails there that actually just disappeared because nobody went there. And when you have a place that very few people go to, it doesn't get a lot of funding, right? Why would, why would the federal government come across and be like, Hey, here's an unknown area. Here's $8 billion to make sure the trails are working good. They don't, it would be a waste of money. Right. Yeah. So because they really heavily, they, they rely on volunteers to take care of the trails. If there is any, right. <laughs> Luckily in the U.S. there's this cool group called the uh, backcountry horsemen of America that helps maintain those trails. But besides that, there's just not, I mean, the park service has little or the forest service has little to do with the trails except for safety and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, they, they were happy. They were, they were glad that we were doing this film and very supportive of it. And that was great to have their support in the past. It's been a challenge with certain, uh, national parks, but, uh, yeah, they, these guys were great to work with. Now, how did the backcountry horsemen of America come to steward the trail or, or take care of the trail? I don't know how they started, but they were pretty much the reason that this film started developing and becoming as elaborate as it was. Because we met a guy over there named Gordon Hirschi. He was a friend of a friend, and he was the president of the Uinta Basin Backcountry Horseman chapter that takes care of the, that area. And he'd been maintaining those trails for 10 years. And super cool guy. And he's just really active in the community. And he really started plugging us into a lot of different areas, helped set up the premiere of the film and helped, helped us get that resupply out there. And uh, yeah, they're just very passionate. It's a, I think there's just a small group of people out there that like to uh, go ride horses through that area. And he was one of them. And they, they feel like it's their backyard and they take a lot of pride in it. <laughs> and the fact that the idea of other people finally getting to enjoy what they've been talking about I think was a plus for them because it's, it's kind of weird. Imagine talking about some beautiful, beautiful place and people are like, well, I've never heard of that. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> so now that it's in the film, they could, they could show somebody that <laughs> it does exist. <laughs> it does exist. And it is as beautiful as we've been talking about. Yes. <laughs> Do they take care of more trails in other areas or is it really just in this area? The backcountry horseman of America is, all across the United States, right? They maintain a lot of trails, mm-hmm. and okay. uh, but but this but there's different chapters, I guess they call them. So there's this one called the Uinta Basin Backcountry Horsemen of America, the Uinta Basin chapter, and they maintain the Uintas, and they're out there, you know, all the time making sure things are okay. And yeah, the, you know, the trails can be pretty seriously overgrown at times. And luckily, you know, they it sounds like they actually did a pass on the trail before we got out there, <laughs> so it was pretty <laughs> cool. So, you know, the, the trees that would be in the way were cut and right. it was kind of cool to see that. It was nice to, to be able to have a path to that. Otherwise, it would have been a major challenge, especially like the first two days or so. There's quite a bit of uh, foliage to, to deal with, but they'd cut a path that was fairly clear for us. So that was, we were grateful for that. That would also help your navigation. 
Yeah, navigation was not easy. <laughs> but it was, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of places where there's just no trail. You just you just go for it. You just gotta know what you're doing. <laughs> GPS is definitely recommended out there. And unfortunately, something that we wanted to make sure we conveyed in the film was that GPS and safety is so important because they lose people out there all the time. I believe it. Lost on the John Muir, if you get lost on the John Muir Trail, somebody's going to find you, right? But out there, it's there's people that have disappeared for like a decade found later on. And uh, yeah, it's there's you know, it's wild, right? You don't get a lot of traffic. So if you get lost, you can't just wait for the next hiker to come down the trail. You need to really know how to self-rescue if needed. And people, again, I don't want to ruin the film, but luckily we had a satellite phone on us. And I would definitely recommend that to anybody going out there for sure. Yeah, I, I was actually going to say that, I mean, they are so remote that, you know, to walk out of them, if you needed to save yourself or, or for a safety purpose, to walk out of them is going to take quite a bit of effort to get to someplace that is actually populated enough. For sure. Even once you get out of the mountains, then you've got like flat landscape for miles and miles and miles. So it's, yeah, it, it, it would not be an easy place to, to self-rescue from. Luckily we had that satellite phone, but yeah. I'm ruining a movie. <laughs> well, and, and you were talking or somebody was talking about, cell reception like separate from the the satellite phone was there yeah. really cell reception out there i mean I, I don't imagine that there are cell towers but zero cell reception except for one day we got on top of lighty peak and yeah so yeah i think that was day four that was the only place we found that had cell reception everywhere else nothing not a single bit of, of reception whatsoever so the the last seven days were zero zero cell phone reception and you know these guys have hiked all over the place right so they used to they're used to being out in the middle of nowhere but even in the middle of nowhere at least every three four days you could usually get at least a piece a little bit of, of signal but not new it does <laughs> <laughs> and you guys were were map and compass navigation and map and compass and gps we heavily relied on gps we were lazy <laughs> it worked again technology is a wonderful thing it is. It can be. It can be. It yeah. can be. Yeah. Now, I I love in the movie, you guys uh, reference a lot of the history of the area, you know, and, and have the great old photos and, and things like that. But I guess you don't realize how much I love the Old West. And I guess that was that was something that, you know, as you guys were referencing the different history of the area, that was so much fun was to see you know, kind of what was happening in that area. And it was probably actually more traveled historically than it is now. Yes, absolutely. Yep, you're right. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know, it's it's easy to look at these wild places as just like Instagram backdrops, right? It's like, oh, here's a really beautiful mountain. I'm going to take a picture in front of it. And, but when you look closer, there's so much historical depth that are that's locked into these places. I mean, if you go to the Uintas and you go back into, even if you go to like a well-known place like Yosemite, if you look up at Half Dome and then you went back in time, like 200,000 years, that mountain would look exactly the same. Maybe the trees would be a little bit smaller or different, whatever, but for the most part, it would look exactly the same. And I think it's just really humbling. And, and I, I think it's awesome. That it provides that kind of context to show that this isn't just a new place. This just, this wasn't installed by humans at some point. This is a place that's been there for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. And to see all that, that time depth behind these places, I think adds to the, the outdoor experience a lot, at least for me. I mean, America moving west is a somewhat new, new thing, right? But coming through that area was, was vital for it. And it was kind of cool to see, uh, you know, how, how the Utah's contributed to the, you know, the transcontinental railroad to, to all the surveys of the West, to, you know, all the, the cool archaeological and paleontological stuff that happened out there. I mean, dinosaurs, I mean, dinosaurs, mm-hmm. imagine back in the day, I mean, now they're not re- really in the news anymore. But at the time, that was a huge deal. That was front page of the Wall Street Journal. That was front page of all the newspapers. Like, holy cow, there's like dinosaur bones, like giant animals lived on this planet before us. And a lot of those were found around that area. So the Wyoming you know utah Mm -hmm. colorado area there was tons of of awesome specimens that came out of there yeah that was that was funny to hear about that little uh what is it race competition yeah the martian cope wars that was interesting 
Yeah, and we, we probably could have made each of those little... So the film, for people that haven't seen it yet, it takes a lot of diversions into these little wild... these uh, stories of the past. And that story in particular about these two archaeologists uh, from the 1800s, we could have made a whole movie on that. They, there's so much more to that story. And it just, you know... <laughs> We, we had other things to get to, so we couldn't spend an, an hour and a half just on that. But it's, yeah, it's pretty fascinating, though. You you had a different adventure. Yeah, yeah. There, there, was, there was a lot of stuff on there that we could have turned into entire movies. We could have made the whole film just historic. I mean, we, we still have a ton of unused interview footage from the, uh, the archaeologists that we interviewed. And there was plenty there to make a whole film right there. So I, I actually even considered, you know, well, I don't want to promise anything, but... I'm almost considering taking some of that footage and cutting together a little short film afterwards to kind of dive into some of the uh, the other cool historical stories from the area that we didn't get to tell in the film. Yeah, like a part two, maybe? Uh, maybe not a part two, maybe like a little featurette <laughs> or something, like a little, you know, little extra to put out there. We'll see. We'll see if I get around to it. <laughs> Talking about, I guess, the historical perspective, the, the pre-historical perspective of the area, it was so interesting to me when you guys would reach the summits and the peaks of areas and then you'd look out over the valleys, the valleys looked so similar. I mean, they were all very glacial valleys, but had such an interesting structure to them, you know, with the the sheer drop off and then the nice little bowl. Yeah. Geologically, it's a really interesting place. It's yeah, it's really cool. There's a lot of, a lot of trails. I don't know if you could tell from the film, but, there was a couple passes, Dead Horse Pass and then Red Knob Pass. Mm-hmm. Both of those are pretty darn dramatic when you look over the edge. And when you're when you're hiking on that trail, it's like if you took like two steps to your left, you could fall a couple thousand feet and die, right? So it's it's adventurous and fun because of that, but it's just beautiful. It's yeah, just the just the whole the, the train and the geology there is just really incredible. It's really old too. It's kind of cool to see that. I guess. I believe I believe some of the oldest rocks on the planet are, are from there. In that area, wow. Yeah, we've got we've got a quote. Uh, I don't think it made it sense. We've got a quote from the uh, the archaeologist that mentioned that some of the oldest rocks on the planet are from from that area. Cool stuff. Yeah. Well, and I was looking at. Uh, oh my gosh, what is the what is the mountain that is basically just rock? Pile oh, King's Peak. King's yeah, Peak. King's Peak. That was. That was tougher than we thought. It's only a little over 13,000 feet. And we've done higher mountains before, right? But that was just hard. I think we were just so tired by the time we got there. And then it's, there's no trail, right? So you're just climbing rock after rock after rock, just boulders until you get to the top. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's an awesome peak to climb. That's one of the few places where we saw some other people. We didn't show them in the film, but we did see some other people. Some people will come up and uh, just, just do that. I think they, do it over a couple of days. They come in through a, a side route and they do King's Peak and take off. That would be a tough one to try to do in a couple of days because yeah, it's it's no joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was basically just one big rock scramble. Yeah, it's a big rock scam- scramble. And there's some exposure points. You, you have to be careful. You know, if you walk too close to one edge, then, you know, it's a couple thousand foot drop. Definitely got to be careful. Did the individuals that you spoke to a about the history of the area and what have you, did they tell you about how that was formed? Was it a glacier drop-off or? Uh, how King's Peak was formed? Yeah. No, they. I don't think they did. I'm curious because King's Peak is pretty different than a lot of the other mountains you see around the area. It doesn't seem like it's glacially cut. I'm not a geologist by any means, but uh, yeah, I'm curious. I should ask him. I, I think I'll ping Tom after this and, and see if he's got any insight on that. Yeah, it's unique. It's just a big, huge, tall pile of rocks. And it's the tallest mountain in Utah. And it's just beautiful. <laughs> I was going to say, we do know that it was named after Clarence King, who was a, one of the leaders of, a, of you know, one of the big surveys, one of the great surveys of the West. And uh, there's actually another mountain in the Sierra Nevada called Clarence King. So these guys tend to be a little bit vain. I think they named one of these places after themselves. So it's King speaking Utah and then Clarence King in, in uh, California in the Sierra Nevada along the JMT. Both named after the same guy, big, uh, you know, big famous surveyor. I was gonna say that would be a cool job to have, just, just be a surveyor. Yeah, yeah, just go out there and explore and write stuff down on maps. I could do that. <laughs> well, imagine the first 
people who were coming out and doing the surveying of these areas. I mean, in these areas are remote now, consider what they were, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever, or even more. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the first Europeans, right? But I mean, 15,000 years ago, there was people coming up through Beringia, right? The, the Bering Strait area, these primitive people coming down and then populating North America. And that was one of the areas where they came through. And uh, I, I learned later, actually, this, this didn't make it into the film, but there was some sort of crazy beast called the short-faced bear. And it was, it was like predatory. It was like eating people. And they think that that bear might've actually impacted the migration of in migration patterns of man into North America. The archeologist might hear this and be like, no, Chris, you're all wrong. So don't quote me on this. But I heard that somewhere. <laughs> I read it somewhere online. Uh-huh. So yeah, actually that, that short faced bear thing was, uh, was Nate was discovered and named by uh, a guy named Lighty and Lighty happened to be, you know, the guy Lighty peak that we climbed was named after him. Well, it seemed like a lot of the, the peaks and stuff were named after the first Europeans who were in the area. That was super cool. That's part of the reason we we decided to go down the history route with the film was because everything, every peak in the area had significance like that. It wasn't just some mountain like, Oh, this is Brown mountain named after some guy named Brown. It it was, it wasn't (laughs) like that. It was like, here's some really interesting person that this is named after. This is like some surveyor or some guy who just, who was the father of vertebrate, stuff or some guy who was an archaeologist and was a big deal at the time or or you know even native american you know history looking back at a you know chipita lake for example chipita lake was named Mm -hmm. after you know chipita who was a a big deal at the time she was the uh the wife of chief uray and both of them were the the, basically the political advocates for the ute as they were you know relocated there from colorado they were forcibly put there unfortunately um during the whole you know European invasion, <laughs> I guess you could call it. Yeah. I mean, this whole area had obvious, had significance for the Europeans, but it also had significance for the Native Americans of the area too. It did. Yeah. There's a lot of artifacts up there and we were, yeah, artifacts are really important and it's not like you could just go manufacture these now, right? That they're, they're one and done, right? Once, the, once you find them, nobody else is going to, another one's not going to grow in its place. And unfortunately right. people do go and, and sometimes loot these, these really important sites and they end up destroying some important archeological specimens because of that. And it's, it's a sad thing. And we had to be very careful not to go find any of those places and film them. Cause we didn't want somebody else to go there and, and find it and destroy it. So kind of a bummer, like rock art, for example, I mean like rock art predates native Americans in a lot of cases, right? A lot of it was, was created by the, this culture called the, the Fremont culture or before them, the, the Clovis culture. But I think most of the rock art came from the Fremont culture named after John Fremont. And um, a lot of that stuff was done way, it predates Native Americans, right? It predates the Native Americans that we're aware of in talking caveman era. And that stuff, for some reason, there's been this terrible new fad of like shooting People go out there with a shotgun and like, oh, look, look at that thing. That's 5,000 years old. I'm going to shoot a shotgun and destroy it. <laughs> and oh it's, or they'll, or they'll paint it or they'll carve their names into it. And it's awful. You know, sometimes we're really smart as a race and sometimes we're just not so smart. And um, yeah, unfortunately, the not smart people are destroying places like that. So Sad, sad thing. We need to take care of these places. These, these, you know, we need to take care of our history before it's all destroyed. Yeah. Because that tangible link to the past is so important. I'm, I'm echoing Tom's the archaeologist words here, but mm-hmm. it's so important to have that tangible, tangible link to the past to understand that it really did happen. For people like us that you know weren't of Native American descent, that didn't grow up in this area, and didn't our, our great 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 grandfathers and grandmothers didn't didn't live here. We're new, but the people here, you know, were predated us by, long, by, you know, thousands and thousands, 15,000 years. And to have some sort of evidence to see that that did exist, I think is really important. I think it's a good thing to kind of give us that context and show us like, wow, these places are important. They have been around for a long time. And this is our country. This is our history. Yeah, sure. My, maybe my grandpa came from Europe or, or Asia or wherever, 
but we're here now and this is our country. This is our stuff. This is our history. Even though we might not have direct lineage connecting us to it, it's our home and we should embrace it and take care of it because of, because of that. Yeah. I, I think it needs to be embraced overall as American history. Yeah. To to go to your point, you know, I mean, I had certainly no relatives that ever were in Jamestown or any of those early, early settlements, but that's still considered, and I still consider that to be my history. It's good to look at it. Yeah. It's ours. We're here. You know, we should take care of it. Have a sense of stewardship of these places versus just thinking it's somebody else's, you know. I think Tom was on, on point when he said, like, a lot, of, a lot of the problem is people don't feel like it's theirs. They don't feel any affinity toward it because it's, it's somebody else's culture, right? And it's not. It's our culture. And it's, you know, it's who we are. It's part of our, our home, so we can take care of it. We are the great melting pot. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully we won't melt down too far during this whole virus thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> now, you guys were, again, above 10,000 feet a lot. You guys were in very open area a lot it, mm-hmm. it seemed like there were a lot of storms there holy is that normal? yeah <laughs> that is normal for the uintas the okay. when we interviewed the rangers ahead of time uh, one in particular a guy named ryan he, he's in the film briefly he's like oh yeah you know expect thunderstorms every single day and like yeah whatever you know we're, we're experienced mountain people you know we, we spent you know tons of time in the sierras and other mountains no problem and we get there, and sure enough, like I think it was every single day we had lightning and, and hail to some degree. A lot of times it was further away, but there was a number of times where we got directly hit. And because, like you said, it's it's wide open and you're very exposed, there's not always an easy place to run to. If you're in the Sierra Nevada and you're on some pass and lightning comes, you run down below a tree line, and you'll be fine. Up there, not so much. <laughs> there is some tree line, but it's not um, it's not like the Sierra Nevada. You're, you definitely need to watch out. And there's there's times where you just can't get to tree line, and we were in a number of situations like that. That I I've had a I, I, I it's been proposed that my trail name should be Lightning Rod. <laughs> I've had a lot of close calls. I know that statistically it's supposed, to be, it's supposed to be unlikely to get hit by lightning, but man, I've had a lot of close calls, and uh, this trip was no yeah was no different. We we had when we were on Lighty Peak. I think the bolts, we got one bolt that hit the top of Lighty Peak and it couldn't have been more than a hundred yards from us. Whew. It was right there. It shook the ground. It was loud. And you could probably feel the electricity. I didn't feel, so I've had a number of people ask that, but I didn't feel any static in the air, nothing like that. Thank goodness. Cause that would have freaked me out even worse, but it was so loud. And it was right there. And we actually got it on camera. It's only brief. I wish I would have done a slow-mo of that shot, but it's, it's distracting because it's the shot of where Matt gets hit in the, um, wait, I'm learning the thumb too. Don't ruin it. I don't want to ruin it. But yeah, that, that bolt was really, really close. We had a number of bolts that were really, really close and it, it got us running, right? Usually when you hear, hear a lightning bolt, it's like, Oh man, that, that looks pretty close. We should get down and be careful. When that went off, we all ran. <laughs> <laughs> we were stumbling. <laughs> we didn't even have time to get her. I mean, it, it's crazy. Cause it went, it went from like a clear sky to thunder and hail in like a minute it was so weird the weather patterns there are very very volatile it's, it's a lot more uh, unpredictable than this year that's for sure this year is you know volatile in, in itself but this mm-hmm. is definitely worse <laughs> by a factor of at least two maybe three was there did they give you any explanation as to why it is so volatile um no they didn't but if i had to guess i would just say it's because uh, actually, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to guess because it would be wrong. <laughs> but yeah, th- yeah, I don't know why. It's just bad. Maybe because it's it, there's a lot of wide open desert south of the area. So maybe the storms push up there. I, I have no idea. But uh, yeah, I definitely would say that if you're going up there, try to camp as low as you can, if you can, if possible. And uh, yeah, watch out for lightning. Keep your eyes on the sky because it'll come out of nowhere. You'll think, yeah. you'll think there's no problem at all. And then all of a sudden... <laughs> well, I think, and I think you mentioned that, or one of the guys mentions that a couple of times where you had gotten distracted by whatever you were seeing or whatever you were doing. And then all of a sudden turn around and it's like, oh, damn. Yeah. 
<laughs> that one actually, yeah, that scare is pretty bad. I think Gordy in particular got really nervous with that one. He was, we were all climbing this mountain and Gordy was down below, the other director, cameraman, and he was looking up at us. And I saw him shaking his head at us. Like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm like, what? What's he shaking his head at? Also, he's the only guy who was paying attention. Because I guess when you're down looking up, you know, you can see the sky a little bit better. But that was the one time on the trail where we got cell reception. So, like, <laughs> like silly people, we were all looking at our phones and stuff. And that was uh-huh. a mistake. <laughs> you guys Lesson were perfect learned. antennas. We were, yeah. And when you're holding a trekking pole that's metal, you know, that's a little mm-hmm. scary. Especially when you've got a you know a camera on top of it, and you're holding it up into the air like a lightning rod. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> you're sort of asking for it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we're learning to be a little bit more careful about stuff because of that. <laughs> now, with this movie going out and people becoming familiar with the Highline Trail, like, what would you tell people about? for them to go out there and experience it, you know, like what would be your, your words of caution and your, your words of encouragement, so to speak. It's a beautiful place. It's worth going to. Um, I would not make it your first backpacking trip. I mean, if you're just doing like, you know, a, a couple of days in a couple of days out, that, that's a different story. But if you're going to attempt the whole entire Highland trail, I would do the John Muir trail first. I would do another trail first, make sure that you're comfortable with long distance hiking and with elevation, and more importantly, navigation. That's the thing that's pretty new here. You need to really have that GPS piloted, know how to use a map and compass, because if your GPS, if your phone dies, you don't want to be stuck out there thinking, like, what do I do now? It's not like the John Muir trial where it's like, oh, my phone died, no big deal. I'll just recharge it the next resupply or something. Like, you have to really be prepared for it. And getting rescued out there is not, not an easy ordeal. So definitely come prepared. I would say bring a satellite phone. I, I wouldn't always advise a satellite phone. You don't really need it a lot of times um, in places like the Sierra or the Appalachian Trail. But in the U.S., I, I, yeah, I would say it's a good idea to bring one. And uh, yeah, just yeah, take your time, enjoy it, and watch out for lightning. Don't get zapped. <laughs> and yeah, it's a beautiful place. And take care of it. Be nice to it. Don't don't leave any garbage or anything out there. Don't be one of those guys that leaves toilet paper and stuff everywhere. Uh. It's pristine right now, right? So we should keep it that way. Yeah, show it respect. Yeah, for sure. When you when you think of the of the trail and you think of this adventure, this ten day adventure that you had, what kind of is the first thing that comes to mind for you? The experience of being out there with these people. I know that sounds kind of like a generic answer. Uh, I, when I did the Jamir Trail, it was all about me detoxing and enjoying my time out there. In this case, it was about bonding with these these people that I didn't know that well ahead of time. I knew Gordy really well, and I, I knew the co-director really well, and I knew Matt pretty well, but the other guys I didn't know too much. But after an experience like that, and the experience of hiking for 10 days in this really awesome, epic place, and then also the experience of doing these film screenings afterwards, um, we, you know, we got to do eight or nine big screenings before, <laughs> before uh, coronavirus shut all those down. And so I feel like I just have lifelong friends now. Like, I feel like I, I got to know these people really, really well. And I feel like I'm always going to know them and they're just good people. So I guess when I look back at it, I just look at it as a really fun, happy memory that will stick with me for you know the rest of my life. Not just as a transient memory that came and went, but as, as a experience that led to good friends that will last forever. I mean, I've hiked since that hike, I've hiked, uh, at least two hikes with Matt after that. So yeah, we're, we're, we're also good friends. We'll, we'll definitely be friends for forever. Probably we'll see. <laughs> Had you ever made a movie, a documentary before? I have, I've made a, uh, this is my first feature length one. This okay. is my first real long one. Uh, before this, I made a film called the high Sierra trail, which is a shorter film. It's 39 minutes. And that is on Amazon prime for anybody who wants to check that out. It's also on Vimeo. And the High Street Trail is just about myself and my friend, John. I'm actually in that, that movie. Myself and my friend, John, and we, we hike the High Street Trail. It's a lesser-known trail. Um, it's a uh, 70-something mile trail that starts on the west side of the Sierra Nevada and ends at Mount Whitney. And, uh, yeah, we documented that. It was kind of, it's kind of more fun. It, it goes into the history, but it's a little bit more fun, a little, little uh, more lighthearted, I would say, than this one. 
I did that one. I also did some stuff on YouTube. Ray Lakes, for example, I think is doing pretty well on YouTube. Uh, it's just a little film about my wife and I uh, doing a trip to Ray Lakes. And that's on YouTube right now. Check it out. Three. Where can people find you and your work? And then where can people find or where will people be able to find the Highline? My, all my work is part of the Outmersive Collective, I guess you call us. So, so I, when I started my last film called The High Sear Trial, it was just me. And I was just going out there, playing with my camera, capturing some footage, editing it, that kind of stuff. And by the end of that film, uh, the Outmersive group, we call ourselves Outmersive now. Before it was called Chris's Awesome Productions. That's how serious, <laughs> that's how serious I was taking it. Um, but then by the end of that film, it had grown. Other people started getting involved. And now there is like seven of us. They're all kind of work together on making these films. And uh, yeah, so we're called, we collectively call ourselves Outmersive. And it's kind of a loose collective. We're not like a huge company or anything. I mean, we are, we're technically an LLC. We are a company, but we're not like a huge production firm, right? We're, we're a small group of people who enjoy the outdoors and who like making films. So uh, Outmersive.com is where you can find a lot of that stuff. But uh, Highline in particular is, uh, we have its own website. It's called HighlineFilm.com. And on there, you can find uh, DVDs and Blu-rays that are available today for purchase for people who are into that. I'm surprised how many people are really into this. And uh, on very soon, April 7th, uh, we are releasing the film on, uh, actually, by the time this podcast comes out, yeah. um, that film will be available on Amazon Prime, on iTunes, on Google Play, on uh, Microsoft Video, on Vimeo, on Vudu. And yeah, we were, we were fortunate enough to score a very good uh, distribution deal for it. So luckily, nice. congratulations! Yeah, yeah, we didn't expect that. Who would have thought that hiking film would get distributed like that? So we lucked out. Not, I, I think maybe not since my mile and a half has that happened. <laughs> maybe I don't know, but yeah, we we are very happy that that happened, and yeah, the film will be coming out and readily available for everybody to watch. I don't know. We've we've been asked before if they're going to charge for it. I'm, it's I don't I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if it's going to be included with like Amazon Prime or if you have to pay for it yet. We'll find out when it happens. <laughs> it's one of those things when you work with a distributor, it's like all their call. They kind of set everything and do everything for you. So I don't really know what they're going to charge, but we'll see. But anyways, it'll be out there. It'll be available. And hopefully it'll help people uh, get through this crazy time. At least I think our big hope is that it'll give people a 117 minute break from coronavirus all the time and let people just think about the outdoors, let people think about that and, I feel like it's a pretty immersive film. I feel like it's uh <laughs> get it immersive out immersive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like it's <laughs> I'm full of bad jokes, but I, I think it's pretty good at pulling you into the story and keeping you there the whole time. So I I think it it'll be a good distraction from what's going on today. So hopefully that'll hopefully that'll cheer some people up at least temporarily. It can get you in the the trail outdoors. It can get you in the camaraderie of humans. Do going and, and doing something hard and experiencing the outdoors. And it's got a little history thrown in for good measure. Yeah. yeah. Especially the, the personal stories of the hikers. I think, yeah. I, I think the biggest surprise that we're hearing from people is they didn't expect it to be so people oriented. I think people were mostly expecting it to be almost like a, like a standard documentary that just shows the mountains and stuff. It, it, it's not just that it goes heavily into these, the stories of the hikers. And uh, that's, uh, I think surprised a lot of people in a good way. And it's yeah. yeah. We're finding that even non-hikers like the movie. Even my wife likes it. <laughs> my wife, is, my wife's my biggest critic, and she, while she has backpack with me, she's not into hiking at all. She just does it to, you know, appease me. But she actually liked it, and my kids like it. So there you go. <laughs> I feel like, like the the back stories that you have and you that you get from these five guys. It's sort of like sitting around a campfire and and telling stories, telling stories about your yourself, your experiences and stuff like that. Yeah, I wanted to tell the stories in a way that was true to how we experienced it on the hike. So, you know, a lot of movies will go through and they'll, they'll talk about, they'll make sure that they introduce all the characters right away. And you get to know everybody from the start and then you see them go through some sort of adventure, some story arc, whatever. When you're hiking, I feel like that doesn't happen. Like you hike and then you'll walk with one guy for a while with one person and then you learn their story. And then the next day you might 
be hiking closer to some other person that you're hiking with, and then you learn their story. So a lot. So instead of just learning the stories up front, you learn them in depth along the way. And that was, I think, not too many films do that. I think it's a little bit weird, but that's how it happened for me and for Gordy. That's that's that was our experience out there. We learned these these guys' stories as we were hiking, and uh, yeah, I think that that effect came out well in the film. Yeah, I think I agree. Yeah, good. <laughs> Glad you agreed. <laughs> is there anything else that we should talk about that we haven't yet? Um, no, I think I think that's pretty good. I definitely appreciate you having me on the on the show, and I appreciate it a lot. And yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you, and and thank you for making a perfect tonic for these times. Thank you. And links for Chris's episode can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Chris for sharing this film and Maya Wynn for the use of the song Try Again. Though 2020 hasn't worked out quite the way I planned, I do intend to continue the podcast, gathering stories, gear recommendations, and inspiration for my thru-hike. Whether that's a Sobo hike this year or a Nobo in 2021, or five years from now. The dream still lives on. I'll see you on the trail.